if any of us had just arrived on the scene and kind of wandered through the checkout at a grocery store or wandered into a bookstore or wandered online to look for uh, the meaning of life, we would be presented with a bewildering array of options. And the possibilities uh, are seemingly infinite and the number of willing uh, commentators or people knowledgeable in something willing to tell you how you should live your life is also infinite. And a lot of those uh, currently available books, magazines, uh, teachers, options, retreats are uh, Buddhist in origin or grounded in something that the Buddha taught. And even then, if we looked through the, the Buddhist uh, books on the library shelf or online, again, this is just a, a bewildering array of teachings, techniques, traditions, uh, teachers. And if we hadn't been exposed to this particular uh, practice, where would we start? We could spend a long time uh, rummaging around through um, esoterica of one sort or another and kind of miss the foundation upon which uh, all of this is is based. But there's one teaching that is uh, central, or I should say the foundation uh, of all uh, Buddhist traditions and lineages and teachers that we all agree on and uh, it is the foundation upon which we have built um, the practices and the teachings and the techniques that we um, offer. So just to introduce the topic with a, a little story. One time when Deepama was here in the States, I don't remember just what the situation was, but there was another, a person from another Buddhist tradition came to speak in a three-month course or something. And Deepama didn't know really who they were, but she was listening to the talk that the person was giving. And, you know, midway through the talk, she said to her daughter, the translator, that person's a Buddhist. <laughs> so... Maybe that person was speaking about something that I'm going to speak about tonight, which is the Four Noble Truths. Probably you've all heard about the Four Noble Truths. Maybe you, can even, maybe you even know what the four are. But I want to speak about them in terms of, really, what are we doing here that reflects or relies on or confirms for us the teachings of the Four Noble Truths? Because... Uh, it is the discourse that the Buddha gave first upon his awakening to the first uh, five ascetics that he had practiced with, uh, pointing out that this is really the essence of what he had realized. So we could say that the Four Noble Truths are really the uh, undiluted, undiluted um, bedrock of the Buddha's teachings the essential dharma of all Buddhist traditions. Now the nature of the Four Noble Truths is such that the Buddha didn't invent this spiritual 
path. Uh, the Buddha didn't uh, teach Buddhism even, but the, the Bodhisattva is one who really looked at, uh, investigated the nature of experience and arrived at the truth. Uh, much like Western scientists have observed the world and arrived at certain natural laws, laws of nature, whether it's around seeds, uh, seasons, genetics, epigenetics, uh, biological laws, physical laws of the universe. Well, the Buddha discovered these mental laws and these dharma laws, which are the Four Noble Truths. And whether a Buddha exists in the world or not, the Four Noble Truths still prevail. Now, whether Newton ever watched that apple drop from the tree and discovered the law of gravity or was able to articulate the law of gravity, the law of gravity still prevailed. Well, so too with these Four Noble Truths. These truths prevail whether we're aware of it or not or whether they had been articulated or not. But for our benefit, the Buddha came into the world, recognized them or realized them and was able to point them out so that we too could practice and realize them for ourselves. So, Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means the truth, and so this means the truth of Dukkha. When I first started practicing this form of meditation, it was at the first three-month course, first three-month retreat that uh, Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg offered uh, back in 1975. And I was 26, 25 or 26, and I was, you know, young and energetic and had my whole life ahead of me, except for the first 25 years. And life looked pretty good. And I think I heard the first noble truth presented as life suffering. Life is suffering. And I thought, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's like, I didn't get it. You know, I stumbled onto this retreat without really, without having known anybody that meditated or no Buddhist, didn't know anything about Buddhism or meditation and wasn't interested in it. I was living in a commune for deadheads and Pink Floydians. <laughs> <coughs> and my spiritual practice was other than meditating. So, and somehow I accidentally, or I should say due to karma, ended up at this retreat, and I sat way up back, leaning against the piano for two weeks. It was not just a class, it was a two-week retreat, first time I'd ever sat on the floor. And um, it was painful. I mean, the body was in screeching agony, and the mind was not much better. It was in equally... You know, and I was just, you know, in not having fun, but I wasn't suffering. Like, I wasn't suffering. I couldn't relate to suffering. And I realize now that uh, I had this, you know, assumption or belief that if I was suffering, I was a failure. And it wasn't until 10 years later when I was in Burma practicing with Saito uh, Pandita, that one of his translators translated dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. Oh, when I heard that, I got it. Oh, the oppressive nature of phenomena? Like 
the heat and humidity today? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's pretty oppressive. So I began to understand dukkha a little more, like really get it. And that just opened the door to more uh, subtle understandings of dukkha. But what that, that challenge of coming to understand personally what dukkha means, what it revealed to me is just how hard it is for us to really open to the truth of dukkha and really what the Buddha is talking about in the truth of dukkha. Because, like I, personalized dukkha as my suffering. And the Buddha wasn't talking about my suffering, he was talking about this universal suffering, or this universal dukkha. So, what does dukkha mean? Well, there's three areas of experience that are referred to as dukkha, that have the dukkha characteristic. The first is pain, physical pain. The physical pain of uh, being hungry, um, jamming your finger in the door, uh, stubbing your toe, getting sick, uh, for some of us growing older, (laughs) and eventually passing away. Uh, The pain, the physical pain that we've all experienced uh, is in the course of a lifetime pretty immense. Toothaches, heartaches, you know, headaches. So the physical pain is obvious, but all also or equally obvious is the uh, mental or emotional pain that we all experience in the form of loss, betrayal, fear, anxiety, depression, um, grief, uh, insecurity of one sort or another. And these two, these emotional, mental pain is equally obvious. And we've all experienced a tremendous amount of that. I don't know why it was so hard for me to think that I wasn't suffering. But nevertheless, this kind of physical and mental pain is so obvious, it's called dukkha dukkha. Just so you get it. (laughs) The second meaning of the word uh, dukkha refers to or rests upon the experience or the understanding that everything changes. And I think the best way to um, point this out is that even though we spend our life trying to accumulate the conditions, the material resources, the relationship, the finances, the career, the money, the, the house, whatever it can, to feel secure. And let's face it, that's most of what we do in life is try to gather the resources so that we can feel secure, that life is predictable, dependable, reliable in some way so that we don't feel so vulnerable all the time. And yet, in spite of all that we do, it's still really hard to feel secure or to feel uh, content or to live without anxiety. Well, you remember three years ago now, a little more than three years ago, this um, tsunami that landed on the northern Japanese islands those people living there at that time were living like we are today. They had their lives, they had their whole families, they had their careers, they had their future, they had everything that life, everything that they needed in life to be secure in their community. And 
in a split second, the earth goes and the wave goes and when it recedes, everything of their life goes with it. And then the nuclear power plants melt down and they can't live there for another hundred years. What could they do? What could they do to prevent that from happening? How could they, not, you know, really? And so you can see that as best as we can and acquiring as much as we do is no guarantee that it's going to provide any security. And in fact, we are all facing a tsunami in our life. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know what it's going to be. But it, the potential is always there. Any one of us could go to the doctor the day after we leave the retreat, have our annual exam, and get a diagnosis that changes your life forever. That's if you get home. <laughs> well, I mean, the world hasn't gotten any worse since you've been here. It's still the same. But life is that insecure. And so even though right now we're experiencing the pleasant conditions of good enough health, good enough finances, good enough stability in the government, and we don't live in a country with war, uh, okay, things are pretty good. But we, we have to say, or we do say, that dukkha is hidden in pleasant experiences. Because pleasant experiences don't last. They're insecure. They're unstable. In a way that we can't fix. We can't change. And so we live our life with this insecurity, knowing of this insecurity, this vulnerability, this potential tsunami, it's just on the periphery of our vision our entire life. And we know it's there. We feel it. We feel anxiety. We feel insecure. We feel like, I haven't got my shit together. You know, if I could just get it together, then I'd feel secure. <sighs> We've been working how many decades to do that? <laughs> right? And it's not possible if we rely on these pleasant conditions to feel secure. It's, it's impossible. Only if you're deluded and temporarily kind of blinded by the reality of this inevitable tsunami that's just right here. And, well, we know that. It affects our life. We, again, we miss this, we miss the significance of what the Buddha is pointing to because we personalize it. We think, oh, it's my anxiety, my insecurity, my fragility, my vulnerability. If I could just get it together, you know, just get a little bit more in my IRA, if I could just have a little newer car, a little better dog, <laughs> you know, a better trained dog, whatever, whatever it is that's your security blanket, then I'd be secure and I wouldn't feel anxious and insecure and vulnerable. Not possible. We've done that. We've gotten new careers and new relationships and new cars and new everything. And we still feel insecure and vulnerable. We miss it. We miss the universality of what the Buddha is pointing to. And whether you're a king, a queen, a celebrity, a movie star, a politician, an Olympic athlete, 
what you have acquired in name, fame, possessions, acquire, you know, knowledge, rewards, awards, whatever it is, doesn't really insulate you from this inevitable insecurity, anxiety, vulnerability. If that's what you're relying on for a sense of safety. Bummer. Pleasant is pleasant, but it also contains the seed of change and therefore vulnerability. Okay, so there's pain and there's insecurity. And then there's the third meaning of the word, a third experience of the word dukkha. And it has two, uh, they have a, there's a macro view and a micro view. And the macro view is we're born. <laughs> and our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can uh, take care of us. They feed us, they bathe us, they clothe us, they coo us, they love us, they poop us, they burp us. They do everything they can to keep us happy because if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy. And doing the best they can, they do it for a few years and then they help enlist aunts and uncles and neighbors and siblings and anyone that will help <laughs> train you into being... Okay, and they have to keep us entertained and keep us educated and love us and take care of all our boo-boos and everything, boo-boos and poo-poos. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they do this for a few years and then, you know, at some point we begin to get the message uh, and when we're an early teenager, we get the final word is, you're on your own. Now it's up to you. You have to take care of yourself. And... To do that, you have, of course, you have to eat every day. And to eat, you have to buy food. And to buy food, you have to have money. And to have the money that you'll need to buy food, you need to get an education to get the job that you need. And to get an education, you've got to go to school for 16, 18, 24 years, and there's some dukkha. <laughs> right. So then you get the food. Did I give you this wrap? You know, how you get your food? You know, after work, get in your car, ride the bus, whatever you, got, whatever you do to get home. And, but on the way, you stop off at the grocery store. Get out of the car, run in the grocery store, get this little basket, push it up and down the aisles, picking up whatever you think you need for dinner, for tonight and tomorrow. And you spend all the time, then you wait in line uh, to check out. And you check out, you take it all out to the car, put all the bags in the car, get in the car, drive home, get out, get all the bags out of the car, bring it into the house, lay it out on the counter, put it in all the places it's supposed to go, the freezer, the refrigerator, the cupboard, the thing, da 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 Okay, finally, get everything put away, get a drink, go in the living room, sit down. Half hour later, you get up, having finished the drink, and you go back into the kitchen, you dig it all out of the cupboard again, and you make a meal. <laughs> and uh, it takes, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, even that's a quick meal. And you rustle up the food you need, opening packages and cans and things and making a heck of a mess all over the counter and then you finally get the food all together you get out all the plates all the silverware everything you put it on the table and you and your family members or housemates sit down have a meal and 15 minutes is over 
You go back to the kitchen, you spend the next 45 minutes cleaning up. <laughs> Taking out the garbage, sending things to the compost, uh, turning on the dishwasher, and going to the toilet yourself. Okay, and you gotta do that every day. <laughs> Not only do you have to eat, you have to groom yourself every day. Gotta look in the mirror. How many times do you look in the mirror today? How many days have you done that? And you gotta do that. And you have to take care of this body and you got to bathe yourself, and you got to brush your teeth, and you got to, you know, comb your hair, and you got to get dressed, and you got to get undressed, and you got to wear the right clothes, or you're going to be too hot or too cold or inappropriately dressed, and you have to do this, you know, and you got to buy all that stuff in the, to begin with, and then you got to get a haircut. <laughs> How many bad hair days have you had? You know, just think. Too long, too short, wrong color, too curly, too frizzy, not frizzy enough. Um, <laughs> bad shampoo. You get the picture? You got to take care of this body. You know, and you got to keep moving because, you know, if you sit still, you know what it's like. It's just like sitting still. You, know, you got to keep moving. And this is the body. Now you got the mind. Now you got to take care of this mind. You got to keep it entertained. You gotta keep it educated. If you don't keep the mind entertained, distracted, you gotta play with it, you gotta kind of soothe it. You have to if you don't take care of it by keeping it distracted, it's like being on retreat your whole life. <laughs> That's stuka, right? <laughs> okay. So So you got this body that you gotta work at all day long, most days, to kind of take care of. And you got this mind that you got to keep distracted and entertained or else it's going to really make you unhappy. And you're going to do this every day for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades. Okay. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends. Go to your closet. Find the best-looking clothes that you have, and put it on this lifeless corpse. Put it in a box, show everybody one last time. <laughs> and put it in a fire or put it in a hole in the ground. Some would say, that was a bad investment. Do you have any other choice? Really, think about it. Well, if all we're doing in life is keeping this body kind of pretty and entertained just to get it to the grave, we're, we're wasting our time, right? I mean, what a waste of time. There's something we can do with our life. When we recognize that this is, this is the journey of life. You know, we can, we can bring some awareness, we can bring some understanding, we can bring some compassion for ourselves having to do this. And, when, and to the extent that we realize that, we can share that understanding and help others with their life. Because, let's face it, we got it easy. As hard as it is, we live with abundance. We have good enough health. You know, we have social acceptability. We have the opportunity for for engaging in meaningful work, unlike a lot of others. 
So we can do something useful with our life. We can help others. We can help ourselves to understanding, and we can help others with the suffering, the inevitable dukkha of their lives. That's the macro view. The micro view is we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And they are constantly being stimulated. Constantly. You never are without the stimulation of the sense doors. Even when you sleep, we don't sleep well. Huh? The, you know, thoughts come to the mind in the form of dreams and disturb our sleep. And you know, old aches and pains that kind of accumulate. Uh, you know, and if you didn't get enough sleep, one day you can't catch up the next day, and uh, the, 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 you know you can close your eyes, but you still see visions. You can't close your ears. You can't turn the you can't turn off the feeling of sensations in the body, uh, and your mind. You, you can't shut the mind. There's there's, there's there's some DJ in there playing music, 24/7, for the rest of your life, you know. And it's it's not something that you, it's not even something you want to listen to. What are you going to do? You can't get anybody to take care of it for you. You have to take care of it. You have to do something with it. That's, when the Buddha pointed to that, he said, this inevitable experience is oppressive. It's just oppressive. And there's no, just no other way to look at it. <sighs> right? This is what it means. This is Sankara Dukkha. We're born, we die. That's dukkha. We have these six sense doors constantly stimulated. It's oppressive. That's dukkha. Pain is dukkha. Vulnerability is dukkha. Insecurity is dukkha. Nobody escapes life without experiencing a lot of dukkha. And it's not their fault. I mean, it's not like you're doing something wrong. This is the way it is. Now, it's hard to open to this truth because... To open to this truth, and, and in fact, it is said, the first noble truth is to be investigated. We have to investigate our life deeply, consistently, uh, kind of unflinchingly, to discover, to realize this truth. Because we just want to distract ourselves. We just want to avoid this truth. We just want to kind of indulge in as much pleasantness and... Uh, kind of delusion, confusion, entertainment, anything to distract us from this truth. And so when you come on retreat and you sit down and you just are encouraged to pay attention, is there anybody that hasn't discovered dukkha? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Physical dukkha, mental dukkha, insecurity, vulnerability, oppression. It's just, yeah. And when we do discover this Dukkha. Don't you want to know what you can do about it? What can you do about it? We know what all we know all that society and our conditioning of our family and our society and our culture offers us. Distract yourself as much as best you can, so that you don't have to feel it. You don't have to be aware of it. Now, when I was growing up. In the 50s, my mother and father were of the generation where if you couldn't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You think we were talking about dukkha in our house? Never. I am thankful. I am really grateful that my Dharma teachers, 
have had the courage to share this teaching with me and have brought dukkha out of the closet into view. Because once we see it and acknowledge it, then we can do something about it. But as long as we're running, as long as we're distracting, as long as we're keeping ourselves away from this truth, we only perpetuate it. So, now that we know that we all experience dukkha, did you ever wonder why? Well, the Buddha wondered why, or the Bodhisattva wondered why, and he realized that the second noble truth is that this dukkha is caused by craving, attachment, desire, yearning, wanting, longing, expecting, feeling entitled to, being identified with, and aversion is also part of that wanting to get away from, wanting to avoid, wanting to minimize unpleasantness and seeking pleasantness. Now, I don't know about you, but for a long time I had this assumption, and I think it's pretty pervasive in our culture, if I could only get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that make sense? (laughs) Isn't that a reasonable assumption? If you could get what you want, why wouldn't you be happy? The Buddha said, yeah. If you get what you want, you will be momentarily happy. Split second momentary. We seek pleasure. We seek pleasant physical experiences, mental experience, emotional experience, social experience, political experience, economic experience, psychological experiences, philosophical experiences. We want as much pleasantness as we can get. And we've sought that. Our whole life is, is a pursuit of that. Are you happy yet? Are you content? Have you got enough? It doesn't accumulate like that, does it? You know, the more you get, the more we want. So the Buddha said, if you get what you want, I mean, if you want something and you can't get it, that's obvious dukkha. That's obvious suffering. He said, but if you get what you want, that's also suffering. What does that mean? Well, if what you wanted, pursued, and finally got was hmm, alive, a partner, a plant, something, it is vulnerable to getting sick, getting old, and dying. If what you wanted and got is made of metal, it'll rust. If it's valuable... You have to insure it and protect it from thieves or being confiscated by the government or taxed. If it's digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's knowledge, there's more knowledge being created every day than you know in the last few hundred years. <clears throat> if you are uh, an Olympian, uh, a champion athlete, your title to world champion is as vulnerable as the next competitor doesn't last. Whatever you get, whatever you get for your happiness can't last. It's subject to change. It can be destroyed, it'll die, it'll be stolen. So if you get what you want, not happy. If you don't get what you want, definitely not happy. But So we come to spiritual practice. You know this line. 
What did you want today? Did you want a good sitting? You want to get enlightened? Do you want to just be kind of patient? Do you want to be mindful? As one of our students said, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. Because as soon as you have what you want, you want it all the time. Right? So we crave pleasant experiences. The Buddha said we also crave continued existence. Now, we don't have to get too esoteric about that. Did you have planning mind today? Did you notice planning mind today? Yeah. What is planning mind? Planning mind is while sitting here enjoying this life that you sought for the last few months. Um, while you're sitting here, you have, you're making all these plans for future experience paradise elsewhere. You can imagine, hey, after the retreat, won't it be great? I can do this, my next vacation, my next job, my next whatever. And we make these plans for future happiness. And when we're eventually done pursuing and acquiring the objects or the experience of that future happiness, we're making plans for more. Because, you know, six months ago you were looking forward to coming to this retreat, right? To kind of be happy on retreat. You know, and while you're here, you're making plans for something else. And this is called samsara, looking for happiness in all the wrong places and never getting to enjoy where you're actually at. Okay, so we crave this continued existence, you know, planting seeds into the future, which if we ever had to live out all the futures we have imagined for ourselves, it would be endless. And while we were living out this endless number of lives, we would have thoughts and plans for another endlessness of lives. That's samsara. The endlessness of searching for security, pleasure, happiness. The Buddha said we also crave non-existence. We love sleep. Right? Just... Turn this thing off. Right? Or we, we try to imagine some way of just shutting down, cooling out, chilling out, whatever. Turn, turn off all this constant stimulation. Or pain. When we get, you know, kind of enmeshed in the pain of the body or the mind, we just want it to end. Right? So we crave pleasant, we crave continued existence, we crave non-existence or, or non-experience. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. And what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagined. Studies of lottery winners and those who experience catastrophic illness or calamity have discovered or realized that a year after winning the lottery or a year after a calamity, baseline happiness is no different than the day before. You'd think that we would know what would make us happy, but we can only conclude that we really don't know what will make us happy. Even winning the lottery doesn't really change baseline happiness. Okay. Our idea of happiness is also independent of conditions. 
There are people that have very little. Even those who are deathly ill can find more happiness than some who are healthy. Happiness, we therefore can conclude, is not really dependent on external conditions, but more so is dependent on the quality of our own mind, our heart and mind. So it's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated, second noble truth is to be abandoned, this craving, this attachment, this desire. Now, if that was all the Buddha ever realized, first noble truth is dukkha, second noble truth caused by craving, good luck. <laughs> what would we do? <laughs> Luckily, he stuck around till the third noble truth came to his mind, and he realized that there is an end to dukkha. There's an end to craving, there's an end to dukkha. And it's often talked about in terms of enlightenment, nibbana, the unconditioned, something that seems, we don't know what it means. It's, it's, it's so esoteric, it's so far out, it's so something for people back at the time of the Buddha, or people who live in caves for all their life. It, it's just meaningless to us. We have no idea what it means. And, and the Buddha said, whatever you think it means, it, it, it'll be other than that. So don't waste your time. But what does our sitting on the cushion here have to do with the third noble truth. That's what's important for us. So I want to speak about that. I've been accused of knowing the first noble truth too well and the third noble truth not well enough. So I want <laughs> I want to spend some time because actually today we have experienced a few dukkha-free zones and that's what we're looking for. One way is when we are just paying trying to pay attention and we discover that we have been lost in thought. When we, when we come out of that thought, you know, we, we kind of arrive on the scene, we can intentionally just let go. Right? We didn't know we were suffering. We didn't know that we were caught up. We didn't know that we were fantasizing things that weren't really happening. But when we discover that, we can just say, oh, don't need to be doing that. Now, when I went to my first retreat, it was a few years uh, out of university. And for f the first couple of years in university, I was studying... Um, nuclear physics. And <laughs> I did a lot of math courses. And uh, back in those days, it was not even handheld calculators. It was all done by slide rule. Slide rule and a lot of long mind math. So I got pretty good at you know, doing a lot of math, math in my head. And so when I went on retreat and my mind wandered into the habits of the mind, it would wander into these esoteric mathematical calculations. You know, like, da -da 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 -da, you know, trying to figure out the volume of something or, you know, the, you know, multiplying out these four and five digit numbers and dividing by this and that and just kind of, you know, I'd be like, choo -choo 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 -choo, and, and my mindfulness would catch this and I'd go, do I need to be doing this now? <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, and, and I could just let go. And in that moment of just recognizing that we've been holding on to something like, and we say, I don't need to do that, let go, there's a moment of relief, isn't there? There's a moment of relief. That's a moment we call a dukkha-free zone. Oh. Of course, the mind picks up something again the next moment and starts chewing away. But we shouldn't miss that, that moment because that's the end of it, that kind of, Grasping is the end of that kind of suffering. Hmm? 
A second way that we experience the end of dukkha comes when we notice these uh, obsessing habits of mind. Now, if you've been following the instructions on that little piece of paper, the six R's, and you have some, you've discovered some obsessing habit of mind, when you're caught in this obsession, it's clear you're suffering. You know, when you're angry, you're suffering. When you're impatient, you're suffering. When you're wanting and not getting it, what you want, you're suffering. But when you're able to be mindfully aware of this state of mind, oh, anger has arisen, desire has arisen, jealousy has arisen, fear has arisen, and is being known, already there's the beginning of relief when we step out of the obsession, even as we just pay attention to it. This too is a moment of relief. It's subtle though, isn't it? It's not immediately obvious, but if you, as you practice and the momentum of mindful awareness of these obsessions grows, you can see how much relief awareness brings even of obsessing habits of mind. Okay, so we have these momentary or temporarily setting aside the obsession by being aware of it. There's a third uh, way that we experience a kind of dukkha-free zone. Last night, Deborah spoke about the seven factors of awakening. Mm -hmm. And there's three energizing qualities, investigation, energy, and joy. There's three tranquilizing qualities, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Balanced, kept in balance by mindfulness, the seventh factor. Now, a week-long retreat is not, uh, for most of us, it isn't, uh, doesn't result in a, an, in a strong momentum of equanimity, but there are times when each one of us have had the experience of just sitting with the experiences of the mind and the body and not reacting. It's just, it's just okay for a while. We're not caught up in desire, wanting, aversion, judgment. It's just, we're just there in the simplicity of just being with the present moment. When all the factors are in balance and we stop suffering, we stop struggling, we stop wanting anything else, we're not trying to get anything, we're not trying to get rid of anything, we just find ourselves, we just drop into this place of being at ease with life, with the way the body is, the way the mind is, the way the world is internally and externally. Again, where's the dukkha? Where's the struggle? Where's the unhappiness? Dukkha-free zone. These qualities of the seven factors can be developed to a very strong momentum. Or we can be more continuously mindful and they will all develop. And at times we can have extraordinary uh, equanimity, where we can just sit for sustained periods of time with anything that arrives, anything that arrives in the environment, in the body, in the mind, with not a ripple of reactivity. This is about as good as it gets as far as uh, meditative experience of, of not suffering, not an ongoing suffering. There's a further experience of the end of dukkha, cessation of dukkha, a kind of letting go, that happens with the development of insight 
I've spoken about the three characteristics before, one being the characteristic of dukkha, the second being the characteristic of impermanence, and the third being the characteristic of conditionality or anatta. Now, when insight develops and we're seeing each moment's experience with clarity, we see and know, clearly recognizing this moment's experience. We're not struggling with it, we're not resisting it, we're not indulging in it, we just see it. Okay, that's equanimity, that has some degree of non-suffering. But we also begin to recognize these three characteristics. We recognize that things are impermanent. Now when the characteristic of impermanence is being seen clearly in an ongoing way, the mind knows this that I am experiencing, or this that is being experienced, is impermanent. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. Not for a split second. The mind doesn't reach for anything that doesn't last. So it's not like we have to let go of something. The mind doesn't even reach for it. So when the mind doesn't crave, when the mind doesn't cling, the mind doesn't reach for anything, there is a letting things be. No craving. This too is the end of suffering. Or when we see the dukkha characteristic, pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressive, when that knowledge, when the knowledge of dukkha is arising in the mind in an ongoing way, we see this characteristic of every experience. Every experience has this characteristic. It's either painful, it's either changeable and vulnerable, insecure, uh, it's unstable, or it's oppressive. When the mind understands this, not just sees it, but understands, oh, this is the nature of this experience. Again, it doesn't have to let go. It doesn't reach. It doesn't reach, it doesn't cling, it doesn't grasp. And this too is the end of craving, therefore the end of dukkha. So too with the third characteristic, or anatta, or the conditionality. When you see, when the mind knows, when the mind understands, Every experience that arises has this characteristic that it's conditioned, it's ephemeral, it's evanescent, it has no enduring substance. Again, the mind doesn't have to let go. It doesn't doesn't hold on. No one in this room would reach for a rainbow to hold it as something beautiful because it's insubstantial. It's just a, a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions that has no substance. The anatta characteristic is seeing that nature of all experience. It's a colorful appearance due to causes and condition that has no essence or substance. When you see this, when you understand this about all experience, what are you going to reach for? What are you going to grasp? What are you going to hold on to for a sense of security or pleasure or happiness? The mind doesn't. This too is this understanding of the anatta characteristic, just like the understanding of impermanence, just like the understanding of dukkha, is liberating. If you don't reach, you don't grasp, you don't have to let go, no dukkha. There's one further experience of non-dukkha. When the mind is seeing these three characteristics in every moment, and the mind is totally balanced. The mind isn't resisting 
the knowledge of dukkha. It isn't resisting the knowledge of anatta. It's not resisting the knowledge of impermanence. It's just completely equanimous and balanced about these understandings. Then the mind can fall into the unconditioned. It may fall into the unconditioned. It may realize the unconditioned. The unconditioned is Nibbana. And this is a reality that can be realized. It is ineffable. It is. It has no size, no shape, no color. It is, as the Buddha said, the end of suffering. The end of suffering. We hear about Nibbana and we think, that what we, like I said, we don't know what that means. Far away, maybe only people at the time of the Buddha, but that's not so. It is available. It is a reality. It can be known. It can be perceived. If you practice insight, you develop equanimity, and you realize these three characteristics, you may realize the unconditioned. It's not impossible. You don't have to believe it, you just have to hear it. And if it's enough to inspire you to practice, and to practice well, you'll see for yourself. The reason that Nibbana, or the unconditioned, is so powerful, and is such a powerful um, experience of non-suffering, is that it not only temporarily Uh, suppresses the defilements, it uproots them from the mind. So that that form of that that kalesa, that torment, that defilement, the seed of it is no longer in the mind. You'll never have to deal with it again. That's the end of suffering. It's possible. Don't for a minute think that it's not possible. And how do we realize the end of suffering? Just like we're doing here. The fourth noble truth is the path to be developed to realize, as each one of us can or must, realize for ourselves the end of suffering. And the path to be developed is the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the first of these trainings is sila, or uh, living ethically, which we're practicing here by keeping the precepts. So it's a training of mind that requires mindfulness, mindful awareness of our intentions before speaking and acting. And if we're aware of those intentions, we will not act on those intentions which cause harm to ourselves and others the transgressive quality or the transgressive degree of the defilements. And this practice, when we are able to be mindfully aware of these intentions, and we don't act out in a way that causes ourselves or others harm, we get to enjoy the happiness of harmony. At least harmony within ourselves, harmony in living in alignment with our own inner standards of what is wholesome and unwholesome, but also harmony in our interpersonal relationship, which 
would be a big relief for most of us to not have that kind of suffering. But even if we are careful in how we speak and act, the mind can still obsess with what are called the obsessive defilements, the obsessive kalesas, the obsessive torments. And we've all experienced a lot of that. And it is mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, which temporarily or momentarily purifies the mind of these obsessive defilements. And this is what we've been doing here, practicing mindfulness to begin to recognize and to begin to sustain the continuity of awareness of these obsessing states of mind. And when we do, and to the extent that we do more continuously or more quickly, continuously, then we suffer obsessing defilements less. Well, this is a great relief. When we are not, when we're free of obsessing, obsessing or obsessions, then we get to experience the happiness of seclusion, meaning the mind that's free of obsessing. And this too is a great, its experience is calmness, tranquility, a sense of ease in the mind and the body, of course. That's a great relief, a kind of subtler but yet more enduring happiness than just living in harmony. And then the third training is the training in Vipassana or insight, developing and realizing these understandings, these three understandings that I spoke about. The understanding of impermanence, the understanding of dukkha, and the understanding of the conditioned nature of all experience. And to the extent that we are able to uh, practice and realize these three characteristics of all phenomena, we're not going to be misled into obsessing about them or obsessing about objects that display these characteristics and we're not going to act them out and in time we're going to uproot them from the mind through accessing the unconditioned. These three trainings which we have been practicing here all day, every day, the precepts, mindfulness and insight, this is the path of practice to develop for realizing the end of suffering. There's no other way. We see, we know, we know. Suffering is in the quality of the mind. It's not in what and who and what we do or who we do it with or what we know. It's in the relationship of our mind and the knowledge of the mind. And this is what we're doing, waking up to the mind and being careful moment to moment, being mindfully aware moment to moment so that we're not caught in obsession, we're not acting out, and we're beginning and deepening our understanding of these three characteristics. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. You can read about it. In, there's all kinds of uh, writings about the Noble Eightfold Path. But as a practice, what we're doing here is the practice, the practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Buddha said of the end of suffering, third noble truth. He said, it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful though, it is sublime, it is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle, but it is intelligible to the wise. We use words like peace, contentment, or the sublime to point towards this truth to point towards the truth of the end of suffering. Peace is its characteristic. 
And this third noble truth is to be realized by each one of us. And why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? First, last, always. He said, because it's beneficial. Because it belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life, the life of awakening. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. It leads to the direct knowledge of the way things are. It leads to enlightenment. It leads to Nibbana, the end of suffering. And that's why the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. So let's just sit for a moment and let these words settle into our heart. In the verses on the faith mind by the third Zen elder, he writes, The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. There's a half hour for awareness, practice in motion, movement, or standing, whatever you wish. And at nine o'clock we'll have our last group sitting of the day together and share some reflections on the, the practice that we've done today.